You're either an entrepreneur or you're not. And if you're an entrepreneur, it's not just your business. If you're an entrepreneur, you need to have that same mentality at home. If your relationship isn't working out, you're going to work harder. If you're not spending enough time with your wife, you're going to find ways to spend more time with her. You're going to do things above and beyond. And if you can think that way in every aspect of your life, then your entrepreneurship in your business is going to be so much better because you're practicing it not as seven, eight, 10, 12 hours a day. It's your life. And if you can treat all of your life as entrepreneurship, then you know you got to go through fires. Things are never going to work out the way you think they're going to work out. There's always going to be bumps in the road and twists and turns that you didn't expect and disappointments. Those are the types of things that break up marriages. And yet those are the type of things that we run through in our business. Take that thinking and bring it home. And if you can do that, then you're going to wake up happy in the morning. Welcome to the Seven Hats Podcast. My name is Yuval Selleck, and I've been on the entrepreneurial roller coaster for over 20 years. I've experienced it all throughout my journey, the grind, burnout, failure, and ultimately, success. The turning point for me was realizing that building a successful company is meaningless if you neglect the other significant areas of your life. So today, I'm inviting you to join me on an adventure through those seven areas, what I call the seven hats. Every week, my guests and I will drop valuable insights and pearls of wisdom, helping, motivating, and inspiring you to get your seven hats in order and deliver real impact with meaning. So let's get going. Welcome, Seven Hatters. In this episode, we speak with Fred Carey and dive deep into hats three and four, the servant and the entrepreneur, as we dig deep into business lessons learned with a seasoned entrepreneur through his roller coaster journey. The Marines have a saying everybody wants to go to heaven, but no one wants to die. And to that, entrepreneurship takes consistency, dedication, and perseverance. But how many entrepreneurs actually stay the course towards success? Fred did, and we get to learn from his book of knowledge. Fred is a senior executive, strategic consultant, attorney, and investment banker. He has focused on building global companies from the startup stage through exit by IPO and M&A. So if you're ready to take command of your mind and take your business to the next level, let's welcome Fred to the seven hats. Fred? Welcome to the Seven Hits. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. Uh, I'm so excited. You know, on the Seven Hats, we meet many accomplished entrepreneurs, and you, by no means, are no exception. You know, you have a multi-decade story to tell, and I'm sure that it's filled with the ups and downs of that roller coaster journey, you know, that we all face. I can't wait to dig deeper into your story, but for most successful individuals, it all stems from their beginnings, the early moments that shaped their success. So Fred, if you don't mind, entertain us by going back to where it all started. Where were you born and how was your childhood like? Okay, happy to do that. If I bring a tear, this is only audio, right? So nobody will see it. I might show the tear. I might. Okay. I might I might clip it and show it. Uh, okay. So uh, I was actually born in Italy to an American dad and an Italian mom. And I lived in Europe most of my first 16 years. The, I think that, that my beginnings really set me up for entrepreneurship because I was living in a family that was 
made of complete opposites. My father oh, wow. came from from Massachusetts, and kids, you know, the old phrases of kids should be spoken to or not speak until they're spoken to, and and um, we had a very regimented life on his side of it. While my Italian side from Tuscany, they pay the children to dance on the tables and you know go get seconds out of the kitchen with grandma, and everything was was way different. And I had to really learn about ups and downs that early in life where uh, I wasn't applying it to business, but knowing that any given day, depending on who I was with and what I was doing, the interactions I was going to have with other human beings, the ones in control of my life, were going to be way different. And I had to adapt to deal with those both extremities. I think those are the, the first part of that really made me think that way. And I think when I was four years old, my, my Italian grandmother used to call me il piccolo avocado delle cause perse, which means the little attorney of the lost causes. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and from four, I was defending myself. And, and you know, I was, uh, I, I was never one to be agreeable with my dad just because he was ordering me to do something. My, my next younger brother, Bill, was the opposite. He, he would agree with anything my dad said and then go on about doing exactly what I would do except he was a lot more diplomatic, I would say no and, and be punished all the time. So what was your dad doing in, the, in Italy? Well, he went there uh, in the military service during World War II, but uh, loved Italy. It was way different than his little Dalton, Massachusetts life that he had had and um, stayed on as a civilian contractor working for the U.S. government. And he did, he did that for the rest of his life, really. And he married an Italian Sicilian? Lady? He, uh, no, from Tuscany, not, not from Tuscany. Tuscany yeah. Sorry, from Tuscany. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, married an Italian lady, had four boys, and uh, uh, wasn't the greatest uh, husband, and uh, was not by any stretch of the imagination the greatest father. But you learn lessons from everything, and mm -hmm. I learned a lot of what not to do lessons from him that w were very powerful, as powerful as the what to do lessons from my mom. So I, I, I can relate. You know, my dad, as beautiful of a man as he is, focused his entire life on his craft. He's a violin maker. And so he just poured himself into his work. And obviously the kids suffered as a result. What was your relationship like? What was the, when you said he wasn't a good father, why was he not a good father? I would say probably two reasons. One, I, I found out about after he died. And the other one I, I saw all along. And the one that I saw all along was as long as I was doing something that he wanted me to be doing, he was all over me and I, I could do no wrong. He, he was a semi-pro athlete. And when I started excelling in football, he was there for every game, cheering me on, telling me what to do. But when I switched at uh, 14, 15 uh, to wanting to play the guitar, Literally, my mom had to buy the guitar for me and we would hide it in the closet and I'd play when he wasn't at home and until he showed up a year later and goes, wow, you just got a guitar? That sounds pretty damn good. So as long as you were playing his game, it was good. As soon as, soon as you went in a diverse path, he always would tell me that I would never amount to anything. You know, and He was an inspiration for me because I wanted to show him that, in fact, I would. But the thing I learned after he died was speaking to his sister is that his father, my grandfather, used to beat him all the time for showing any type of emotion, for showing any non-manly type uh, characteristics, for 
having the chair I was threatening to throw out earlier here that he was kind of beaten into the way he was. And so I did a lot of forgiving after, after learning that. So conditional love and no emotion or emotional support that children need so, so much growing up from their father. How did that affect you in your life? I became a single dad of two amazing girls, and I uh, found a way to balance. You know, I've had several different businesses, and uh, the year of uh, the first year of my divorce was probably made the least amount of money I've ever made in my life, and that was because I completely focused my attention on on the girls. I was the kindergarten room mom. They didn't even have the designation room dad, and to this day, and my daughters now are 30 and 21. And to this day, especially the 21-year-old who is more emotional than the, than the older one, sends me Mother's Day cards that are wow. six, six pages long about all the things that I've done, how I've been a mom and the dad, and, and how she would not be anywhere near as strong of a woman if it wasn't for me. So despite all the financial successes I've ever had in my life, if anybody asked me what my most successful moments were, was to have to take on the responsibility of both of those roles and and do a pretty darn good job of it. So you overcompensated for what you didn't get with your girls, basically. I would say I compensated perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And <laughs> why didn't it work out with, because it seems like you were early in your entrepreneurial career with your wife, which is what happens normally, right? You get married, nobody knows what the hell's going to happen with, you know, as being an entrepreneur. And all hell breaks loose and relationships suffer you know, so many times, right? Is that, was the was the business the issue in the relationship? Is that you weren't focusing on, on your wife or was there something else? I, I really wish it was the business, but uh, she ended up getting a, a very serious uh, mental disease nine, nine and a half years into our marriage. Uh, uh, paranoid schizophrenia still has never been treated. Uh, she kind of lives out of her car or on the beach or things still like now that. To this day. Till this day, she wow. still refuses to be treated. And uh, so the the judge in the, the divorce uh, case really gave her an opportunity to go get treatment and have some custody. And she was basically, no court can tell me what to do. And, wow. and she rather did that. So pretty tragic. So you got custody of the girls? Yeah. Got it. And do you ever speak to her anymore? Or that was basically uh, lost contact? I speak to her uh, and send her money still every once in a while, even though we've been divorced since 97. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's kind of tragic. I, I don't speak to her. I speak to kind of the shell of what she yeah. was because she was the most amazing, really positive individual, wow. very supportive. She used to embarrass me at dinner parties talking about how awesome I was to anybody that would listen, you know. And it went from that to just complete destruction. Wow. It's amazing. I mean, I, I, I only probe this because mental health is such a big problem, you know, in the last decade or two. And whether you're an entrepreneur working, you know, working alongside or or in partnership with someone who either doesn't know, right, what an entrepreneur's life is like and resents you for it, right? Or there's some mental, you know, issue, right. mental health issue around. So it makes it that much more difficult. So so let, let's go back to, so you have, you have four boys, right? With your dad had four boys and tell me a little bit about your relationship with your brothers. How did that go? Did you, you guys still in conversation? Were you, you know, arch rivals? Like what, what was that like? 
Uh, we we had a really good tight relationship, and I still do with two of my three brothers. Uh, one is a long story that I still don't understand. Probably the one brother that I supported the most, uh, put him through law school, set him up as a partner of mine. And uh, uh, when I went to, because I was an attorney for, uh, in the middle of all this other crap, I was an attorney for about eight years. And when I decided to go back to entrepreneurship, then it didn't work out so well with, with him, even though I left him everything, left him the business. And so we, we have a strained relationship, not, not for my wants, but yeah. uh, that's just the way it is. But my other brothers uh, get along with famously. Although, when my youngest brother, who was eight years younger than me, when we were still kids, I remember we got some sets of boxing gloves, and I would I would box him, but I'd get on my knees to make it fair and proceed to kick <laughs> the shit out of him. So, so, but he's forgiven me for that. I love it. And so growing up, so now you're in school. I'm assuming when did you leave Italy and come to the U.S. I uh, actually came to the U.S. in first grade for about a year and a half for my father needed some training. But then back to I was in France uh, then and we came back uh, when I was 16 to Cherry Hill, New Jersey. It was the 60s, late 60s. And I showed up from Paris, France with my bell bottom striped pants and my polka dot uh, (laughs) shirts with white collar and Beatles haircut and drop into Cherry Hill, New Jersey, where everybody was a greaser with... uh, black leather jackets and greased back hair, and everybody wanted to kick my ass. Little guys, big guys, fat guys, skinny so guys. Funny. They all wanted a piece of me. I have the same kind of story. My my parents moved me to upstate New York, so I'm an East Coaster too. Now I'm in the West Coast. But I lived in uh, New Jersey. I lived in Queens and went to school at Binghamton. And I remember when I was in ninth grade, my parents moved to like Hunter Tandersville. I think the population was, you know, 800, <laughs> you know, the, whole, the whole town. And here I am like this, you know, city kid with the Walkman coming in and I was just destroyed that whole yeah. year. I had made my parents move me back. Yeah, uh, good. I, I wasn't so brave. Uh, I, I spent probably the worst three years of my life there. Uh, but it does shape you. I mean, I think your story is is similar to my story in some respect, you know, in terms of not having the, the father figure that, you know, that is ideal, um, having this conditional love or trying to please uh, being in places when you're earlier on in your child, uh, childhood where you either get teased or so it's like you have to prove something and yeah. wanting to succeed is that void that you've been missing. And you're like, you know, I got to do something big because if I don't do something big, then what is that all about? Right. So I think I think I've I've seen that before many times and it seems like this is this is um, happening here. So when you were so you're in in, um, in the States you go to school? Did you go to college? And after college, give me the timeline of your your beginnings. And did you ever did you want to be an entrepreneur when you were a young kid? Was that a dream, or did you fall into it? How did that work? Yeah, you know, I didn't even know the word entrepreneur that, then. But when you talked about uh, your own upbringing, it really made me think of something in a, diff- a different way. And, I, and, I, and I'll get, I will answer your question. Uh, but it just inspired something to me. And, and for all of you people out there, guys and girls that are thinking this way, I was an outsider. And it sounds like you were an outsider, at least for a period of time. You know, And it seems a lot of times when those of us that are challenged to find our own way, when we're different from everybody else, or we believe we are, or people tell us we are, that we really have the opportunity to get out of that comfort zone and get into something new. Because 
we don't like the comfort zone because it kind of sucks <laughs> for us because what's normal for everybody else, we're outsiders in there. So if you're this kind of grew up in the corporate world and had this very successful executive life, you know, the chances are you probably had pretty decent normal upbringing with the good chummy friends and, you know, got uh, six packs and uh, on the weekends and got <laughs> yeah. drunk in the back of your Chevy or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, I was smoking weed back then. Back then you, <laughs> you, you did weed or beer, one or the yeah. other, not both. And so, but in any event, what shaped me as an entrepreneur, I think that's, that's part of it. Even if I didn't know what that word was, I, because I felt like an outsider, I kind of felt like I needed to do my own thing in my own way. And, and that was always there. I, uh, recently, I, I looked at uh, newspapers.com. You should check it out if you, if you haven't. You can find newspaper articles from all over the country back to the 1800s or even earlier in some cases. And although I'm not that old, I was looking for, I was in a rock band in, in my uh, last two years of school and I was looking nice. for a story that uh, about that band and the Cherry Hill News paper. And I didn't find that story, but I found a, a classified ad of, me, of mine when I was still 16, just turning 17. And the classified ad said, you know, I will work seven days a week, 24 seven, I'll mow your lawns, I'll watch your kids, I'll wash your dishes, I'll paint your fences, whatever you want, I'll be there Monday through Sunday. And so that's pretty damn entrepreneurial. And, you know, and and I think it really started there and and it it culminated and I don't want to take up the whole show blabbing, but it culminated when I was about 20 and I was working for uh, this company. And I I have always felt that, wow, when I look at things, there could be some ways to do things better. And and I did that even though this was my first real job besides Burger Chef Uh, and (laughs) when I and the rock band where I didn't make any money. And so I would come up with these ideas and the boss would tell me I was an idiot and you know, get back to stocking shelves or whatever. And three months later, he would implement the idea. And, and that happened three times, never once given me any credit. And after the third time, I basically said, I'm never working for anybody else again. And, and I never did. And 23, wow, I, I think, that. was the last time I worked for somebody. So you, were, you said you were an attorney? Yeah, I was an attorney. That was accidental too. Oh, you asked me about my education. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I did that ass backward as well. I because I was in a rock band. We were sure we were going to get this big contract because we had all original songs. We had a big following. Everybody kind of loved us. So I did six months of community college, and and that was it. And I dropped out. After that, when the rock band didn't didn't pan out. And uh, I went into other businesses. I went into food business and I went into concert promotion business again with six months of college. And when I was about 26, when I was still working with bands, these two attorneys had been negotiating with me for three months for a management contract for a band they represented. And after three months, they said, you know what? You should be a lawyer. If you want to be a lawyer, we will make you our partner today and pay you a third of everything. You can go out and make business happen, learn about it, and, and we'll, we'll make you a one-third partner immediately. And I'm like, yeah, okay. And then I realized I had six months of college. And so I, uh, I basically, there's something called CLEP, and it's a college level entry preparation exam or something. You can get credits if you can go in there and take these courses and show that you have the proficiency to uh, uh, to to have passed that if you were taking it in college. 
Most people do that for one or two classes to kind of catch up. I did it for two and a half years of school. And in three weeks, I got my undergrad and was able to get into law school and, uh, and uh, graduated law school. But it, it was all, I do not recommend that even less than I recommend entrepreneurship. <laughs> even less. I love that. So what made you end your uh, legal career? I wasn't really creating anything, you know, and that's always been my driver. I, I always tell my audience they kind of find their purpose and, and lead from there, you know, and you can be very success, successful financially and very miserable in every other aspect of your life. Yep. And, uh, and so you can actually be much happier if you're not anywhere near as financially sound, but doing exactly what you want to do. And so, uh, so I stopped being a lawyer. I was really, really good at it. I was making a lot of money. I was winning all my cases, none of which I should have won. And it just didn't do it for me. So I went back to entrepreneurship. Were you married that time already or no? I was married. Uh, I was married for the last half of it. Last half of it. Got it. So then what got you into, like, what was the first business idea? What, how did that happen? Aside from the, the two in my uh, 20s, the first business idea when I, I moved from, I was in South Florida then. I moved from South Florida to San Diego, where I still am because the environment in South Florida is a great party environment, but I didn't feel, especially at that time, and it's probably changed somewhat now, but it wasn't a very entrepreneurial nesting ground. And so I came to San Diego and I started a company called Boxlot. And, and this is just when eBay was starting out and um, they had about a nine month head start over us. And we got in there and tried to do auctions better, better stuff. And we just, we just could not catch up to them. And that was a real pain point because I had gotten about $8 million worth of investors at that point. Wow. And we were just, just struggling. We, we were not making it at all. But we were doing something that was really interesting. I had a big uh, engineering staff because we were building up a lot of the technologies necessary to make auctions really work. A lot of the things like reverse bidding or bid or buy or multiple bids or setting your, your highest bid and having the technology do incremental bidding, none of that existed. And we were building all that stuff. And so I decided, well, let's be a technology company instead. And so we created all those, those things. And uh, nine months later, we got a, an offer to acquire us for $125 million. So worked from, out well from from whom from a competitor to ebay from, or from the, a from a company called infospace that was the fastest growing public company at the time their ceo saying they were going to be the world's first trillion dollar company but then a few years later they imploded but all all that technology was being used by everybody because infospace was really supplying everyone so ebay yahoo amazon all, all of them using that technology yeah i heard of infospace so all right well First business, like real business, $125 million sale. Were you a small minority or did you have enough to be able to say, well, what do I do now? Do I start golfing or do I start something else? Well, I, ha I had about uh, 40% uh, of that. I started looking for $10 million homes, and uh, but it was locked up in shares. And, uh, and the dot-com burst in 2000. Right. 
And so, you know, my 40% share started becoming less and less and less and less and ended up being worth a few million instead of, you know, 50, 60 million. So uh, that wasn't, that wasn't very, that was painful. That was, that was painful watching money disappear wow. before your very eyes. Any, any lessons learned during that time that you want to share with somebody who's about to sell or thinking of selling in the future or, you know? Yeah. Well, if you have a position where you're selling and you are doing a stock sale, you got to find a way to make some of it cash, number one. And if you can't, you can actually leverage that. There are companies out there that will take that stock and use that as collateral for you to build a solid portfolio around that. And they're, they're experts in that field. And that kind of minimizes the risk of just holding on to that one piece of equity and, and, and what can happen with it. Those are uh, probably the, the most important lessons to be able to take that and diversify. At least have some cash available because yeah. things sometimes happen <laughs> that you don't predict. Yeah, yeah. and right. try to make your try to make your lockup as short as possible. You know, a lot of times they'll try to lock you up for eighteen months or a year. You know, see if you can make it six months or less. Did they want you to continue working and taking them through the transition, or were you out no, right away? No, no, out. Out. So now you have, all right, so now you have a few million dollars. I mean, it's still enough to to enjoy life a little bit, but obviously that's not enough for you. So what do you do and how did you come up with the next idea and why? The next idea didn't really go anywhere. So I don't know whether we should talk about it because I only did it for around nine months or so, but it was a company mm -hmm. called Azure. And if you guys cut and paste right now, uh, it was technology that we invented, but we weren't able to get funding or anything. And that was acquired for pennies on the dollars. Mm -hmm. on the dollar. But that was a cool ass company, but got nowhere. After that, there was a company called Path One. And with Path One, we were really trying to, uh, and that was uh, 2001. And uh, my first day on the job was uh, the day that, no, 2011, I think. But my first day on the job there was a, a really bad day for us in, in history as well. And we had this company that we were wanting to utilize the internet as a backbone to deliver real-time, high-definition, live data from the major sporting events around the world. And we were really fighting a battle uh, because the internet is a kind of a best efforts type network. It really takes your information and cuts it up in millions of little packets and sends it over diverse areas to get to its location and puts it all back together. And so nobody thought that we could actually do it for real-time HD sports because we're not talking about transmitting to the home. We're talking about big-ass transmissions that were going to CBS in Los Angeles or NBC wow. in New York where they would take it into their room and then distribute it out from there. And we had a, I would get booed off the stage almost uh, when I try to talk about this, but we built this amazing technology. What it really did, the simplified version is it sent two packets of every single, every single packet we duplicated and we would send it out. And so our machine at the other end would look at all these packets. Oh, I got two of these, throw one away. Oh, I only have one of these, great. And it would do that all in a tenth of a second. And, um, and so all H, live HD sporting events that you were able to see on, on TV started uh, there from, from our technology. And we had like some other uses as well. There was a Russian, uh, a Russian television network that 
were threatened to be locked up because they were actually trying to tell the truth. And so they moved to New York and they used our technology to be able to still transmit in, in Russia. So that was, that was a really cool application of, of what we did. And then that, was, uh, uh, that technology was acquired by Scientific Atlanta, a very, very large organization. So that was, that was a good day. And so when you, so that was your second acquisition. I'm assuming that this time you didn't lose 90% of your worth at that point? Correct. Okay. And you were significant. It was a significant sale that, again, you could have just said, guys, I'm chilling out. I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm good. <laughs> I've had my, my downs. Yeah. Uh, what possessed you to continue on? And, and what, what was that mindset like? So tell, tell the entrepreneurs out there who have never sold a company or, or have been acquired, what is it like to get acquired? And what is, what is, what's that mindset after you get acquired and you have so much that you can't even spend it all, you know, quickly. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure I follow that. Uh, I'm in that second half because I can spend a lot quickly. Uh, but uh, I, I'll tell you what my first inclination was is, is really not to work. And four months into my retirement, uh, around 20 years ago, it was it was a Thursday and it was 4:10 in the afternoon. I I realized it was 4:10 because it, when the realization of what I was doing hit me. It, struck in me it'll be there forever it was thursday afternoon i was in my family room still wearing my robe with uh, half of my junk hanging out uh, <laughs> unshaven hadn't brushed my teeth cold cup of coffee in front of me and i'm watching oprah and and i thought and oprah if you're listening no offense i love you woman uh, <laughs> it but, wasn't Oprah's favorite things, was it? <laughs> uh, no, no, no. And, uh, you know, and you get one. Well, I got a job yeah, exactly. is what I got. So yes. uh, I, I went, uh, I went to, to work the, the very next day and, and started a, f a few different companies. But I think to your point, um, when you get to the point where you have enough money not to work, why work? Most of the time, you're, if you get to the point where you have enough money not to work, it's because money's not your driver. If money's your driver, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. You're going to do things for the wrong reason. You're going to have a miserable life. And, and the first hurdle you come to, you're going to stop and try something different because you're, you're a hustler. You're hustling yeah. and you're just trying to make money. If money's not your, motivated, uh, your motivation, if, it's, if you're purpose-driven, if you're trying to make a difference, whatever difference it is you're trying to make, uh, whether it's... Well, my company, Idea Pros, we talk about that all the time, like whether you're trying to change your world or the world, right? And, and so if you're purpose-driven, you can be wanting to change your world and change and make it better for the people around you. If you're really, really out there, you, you want to change the whole world. And those are your motivators. And so how much or how little money you have is way secondary to what your bigger purpose is in life. So that never ends. There's no finish line, guys. Yeah. I, you know, I have a question because I think you have enough experience to answer this well. What is the difference in mindset and expertise and requirements of an entrepreneur from making their first million, 10 million, 100 million, or more? Well, obviously, there's plenty of exceptions of uh, people making 100 million the first go around, right? Yeah. But, uh, but, for, These days, um, it's kind of weird because you, you you're born and you're you know you make a hundred million on YouTube. So, yeah, exactly. It's a really difficult question, but I think the one the one thing through it 
whether it's 1 million, 10 million, 100 million, is the mindset part of it. That you, that's the consistent thing. And, and if you think of it, it's a consi consistent thing, but it's ripening and, and growing because you're learning more and more and you're applying it better and better. But you have to have the mindset, even for that first million, that you can do it, that failure is just a temporary obstacle, that no matter how many curveballs get thrown at you, you're going to find a way to hit a home run. And that consistency, the persistence, the ability to work when you're tired, uh, to not give up when you know you should, those are the things that will get you to that first million. And, and beyond that, as you grow to the 10, to the 100, it's experience that is going to be the driver there because there's a big divide between 1 and 10, and there's an even bigger divide between 10 and 100. And that's not just mindset. It's operationally, you know, how do I run a, a tight organization? How do I motivate the people around me? How do I stop becoming an entrepreneur and start becoming a leader, right? Because entrepreneurs, really, you wouldn't think this, but they're the worst leaders in the world because they're used to doing everything on their own. When you start yes. out, you're in your garage. You're doing everything. I'm the secretary. I'm paying the bills. I'm going yes. out and taking meetings. I'm trying to balance these books. And as you start growing, you need to bring in those smarter people than you around you and start releasing and letting go and building structure and letting the other brains in, in the organization do something of value so that you can have more value yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So do you mind if we jump into a couple of questions that are kind of random, you know, that I've had that take in all your experience and let's see what, what comes out of that. So are these questions you've never asked anybody else? I've never asked these questions. I never asked the same question Shit. in any of my interviews. So if you've done research, I apologize. You might have to okay. fake it till you make it. All right. All right. <laughs> so, you know, lately I hear entrepreneurs complain on how unpredictable the world has been, right, in the past few years. And we've had some multiple, you know, Black Swan events. I don't think, it doesn't matter who you are. You could be Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, it doesn't matter. You're, you're, you're not immune, right? And for us entrepreneurs, we're problem solvers. And we must make, you know, daily critical decisions that, can not only affect our business, but so many people around us because we're so responsible. We have a lot on our shoulders. I think what people don't understand is how much entrepreneurs have on their shoulders and, and leaders, what keeps us up at night, right? What do you tell entrepreneurs who are fearful, right, in making decisions in the last you know couple of decades because they're so fearful of what might happen and and I'm talking about like 2001, then 2008, and like just you really had some big, big moments, especially in the last since COVID. What do you tell an entrepreneur who's kind of fearful of making the decisions that are so critical to make when they're running a business? I would tell them to go to those years on Google and look at companies that started in those years. Some of the most successful companies started in extraordinarily down markets. Uh, Google, for one example, go on Google. Uh, yeah, go on Google. You know, G Google started like really in the the whole internet bubble and crash and and came out. General Electric, go back as far as you want to go. Go to General Electric and see when they started. Some of the biggest, best, highest performing companies in the world started when times were really, really tough. And generally, as an entrepreneur, forget about the macro environment because you can't control it. Just realize if you have something that's really good and you have the dedication, experience, 
and uh, desire to make it happen, that you're going to be able to make it happen. And what happens in the world is we're really on a, a pendulum and it always swings too far in one direction. It never is in perfect harmony right there at that center point, right? We're either too much or we're too little. And when you get those really too much bad stuff moments, you know it's going to come charging in the other direction because that pendulum is swinging all the way up in that one area. So start preparing for the things that are going to be happening when that pendulum turns back your way and be prepared and start start being ready to make money and to have a successful business. Don't Don't be afraid of things like that. How much luck do you think plays into success, especially during these times of the pendulum swinging? Very little, I think. I, th- I think luck kind of can play more on the outside of, of that when you're exiting, uh, for example, the, the internet bubble, right? Uh, yeah. Things like that. You've done everything, you've executed, everything's perfect. There are companies that started a year later than others during the, the internet boom where the guy next door made 150 yeah. million and you got $150, yeah. you know? And, and so that exit timing, there's, there's luck in that, that I don't, well, I was going to say, I don't think it's predictable, but as you get older, it becomes predictable. Like the, all the things with Bitcoin and everything, I started telling my friends, be careful. Yeah. Uh, you know, nobody's buying anything. You're just you're trading money around a circle and pretty soon the circle, there's not going to be anybody else in the circle. So we, uh, who knows where that's going to go, but it, there's huge volatility and you can see things that don't make any sense. Like, for example, even during the dot-com area, right? You could have had shit.com and yeah. made a fortune. Made a fortune, uh, yeah. Because it had the dot-com name to it. Uh, or things like in 2008, I started getting wise when I got wise a year earlier before the crash, the real estate crash, when both my gardener and my pool guy were talking to me about how many homes they owned and, yeah. and flipping homes. And I'm like, what? And who's going to buy these homes if it's down to the pool guy doing it? You know, so there are indications if you pay attention and just don't have this exuberant, like, wow, the world is a different place now. No, fundamentally, it's the same. It's supply and demand. And that's all there is. When you have too much supply and no demand, you're screwed. When you have a lot of demand and hardly any supply, you can make a fortune. Yeah. I mean, I there's definitely a sign where, you know, grandma is is getting into the stock market where normally she would not, you know, you got to sell your shares because usually yeah. what happens, the first round of, of sales, let's say, or, or activity are those by the institutional or really wise, powerful individuals. And then it's, you know, it's like that curve and the laggards at the end, once the laggards get into it, if you're smart, you better be out, whatever, whatever it is. And and I remember yeah. that in 2008. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's funny. I, you're a very vocal individual and, and I've done a lot of research and you have an incredible, you know, social media account and you you spend a lot of time educating, which I love. You know, I saw an interesting post, a uh, provocative quote that you had on your Instagram from uh, Mr. Marcos, who was the uh, former president of the Philippines. And it goes like this, quote, he who is a leader must always think alone, act alone and accept consequences alone. What's your take on that statement? And and I had very mixed emotions in quoting him because I have a very large and, and loyal audience in the Philippines, actually. They're my most loyal. If I go to the Philippines, I could be king. And I had mixed emotions about that. But I also wanted 
to have a further discussion about leaders who fail uh, later on. So I'm using that as part one of, of uh, a couple of different parts. Uh-huh. But but fundamentally, what he's saying is is really true. You want as a leader, you want to speak last, right? Because you want to take it in. If you sit and you go into a table and it's full of your executives or your staff or or some audience, whatever it is, you want to hear what everybody has to say. Because if you say say it first, everybody's going to just agree with you, or That's at least there's a tendency to do it, right? So speak last. But after you speak last, you have to take everything in. And make up your own mind. And, and it's nobody else's fault. If somebody in the room, if two executives suggested one thing and you decide you wanted to go that way, ultimately you, you are the one responsible. You're the one captaining the boat and, or the ship. And you're the one that has to make a decision and, and live with it. Not necessarily stick with it. Because if you see things aren't going the way you want, you have also a duty to change and make it better. But fundamentally, you're very alone as a leader. And... I have to tell you that people who are chasing success, success is never permanent. And there are many, many nights where I've slept an hour, two hours because of all the worries I've had, the stresses I've had. Even in my current business, there's ups and downs. And we got to a point where we're growing too fast that we had capital constraints because the cash flow couldn't keep up with the growth. And so you can spend these sleepless nights and the next day when you go talk to your executives, you can't tell them that. Yeah, you you exactly. can't say, I'm so worried about our business. I don't know what's going to happen. You have to be that force, the, the, the power in the room that says, we're going to make this, guys. Yeah, I know it's difficult. You guys are probably worrying about it. But these are the three things I was thinking about last night. And you omit the part when I was up all fucking night crying. Uh, and yeah, I'm sorry if I use that no, word. No, no, please. But, but, it's all good. Okay, because... I have a trademark uh, tagline is, is uh, fuck average, be legendary. And the uh, trademark office gave it to me. So uh, I use that word occasionally. But the point is, you are all alone as a leader at the end of the day. I'll never forget. I mean, there are so many sleepless nights. I mean, right now with my current business, it's doing really well. I have a very large team in the Philippines, by the way. They're the most beautiful people. Um, Amazing. It, it, incredible. Incredible people. They're so loving and they're so loyal and they're... You know, they, they they talk about how it's a family, right? It's not just a workplace. It's just it's an incredible group of individuals. But I remember, you know, hat number three, and we'll talk about relationships in a second. Hat number three is all about relationships with others. And those nights where you're sucking your thumb on, on the bathroom, you know, floor, you know, f- trying to figure out how am I going to Wait, pay you got a camera know? in here? <laughs> oh, yeah, I do. Guaranteed. And so when you're when you're doing that and and you don't know what's next and you don't you know you have a lot that I was talking speaking to you earlier about the weight that entrepreneurs carry on their shoulders. It's not just like fuck it. If it was just my life, well, you know, whatever, I can get a job, right? right. But I'm talking about you know tens, hundreds of people that are depending on you, and that's a big you know weight. And if you didn't have support, this is why it's so critical to build great relationships with your spouses and your children and your friends, because those are the the individuals that are going to help you through those difficult times. Like you said, you can't go, you can't show up at work one day and say, fuck this, this this sucks and I hate it and you you don't understand and the thing's going, I'll leave that to my partner, my business partner. But for (laughs) me, it's all about keeping them excited. And that was a challenge at COVID, right? We were about to lose it all. I mean, PPP helped us survive. And the fact that we got into another 
you know, area that we could have thrive on. But, and it goes to the point of, it doesn't matter what, how the situation, what the situation is like, if you have a product that you can utilize for a certain need during a time of despair, look what happened to Zoom. I mean, you know, they thrived. Yeah. And Peloton. Yeah. I mean, not that they're doing so well now, but at least they did really well for a period of yeah. time. By the way, I you know, when COVID happened, I almost immediately, and I don't play stocks at all, more like the grandmother in that sense, but I immediately bought Amazon, Zoom, Apple, and um, I think UPS <laughs> and one other that all would have to benefit by, by us all staying at home. And, and you know, they all did incredibly well, uh, although Zoom didn't seem to know what it was doing with its video conferences. They didn't expect what happened to them. But, but the point is, yeah, there, you need a support system around you. And because I have a support system, it makes those terrible nights better because in the morning when you talk about it, and you have your wife or your husband, or your girlfriend, or your boyfriend say to you, you can do it. Yeah. You've always done it. You know, I have faith in you. And if you can't, if it doesn't work out, what's the worst thing that can happen? You gave it your all, but you can do it. Yeah. Every time you've been at the end, you've done it. And so that gives you that momentum you need. I, on the other hand, bought every travel stock possible. <laughs> <laughs> thinking that it's going to come back like carnival. I mean, come on. It can never go down more than what it was. I'm still like 60% down, but eventually right. people will travel again, I hope. I wish yeah. I was as smart as you. So, uh, you know, as entrepreneurs, you know, we're pulled in so many directions. And for so many, the needs to our business wins out, you know, over and over again. And, you know, we suffer the consequences in many aspects of our lives. And this is where the seven hats came in. And I know that you focus... On, on your, you know, on, on your categories of life, on the other aspects of your life, uh, because you've been burned many times. And this is, again, like why I created the seven hats. I was one of those entrepreneurs that almost lost everything, right? Including my business, my, my family. And it was only because I was solely focused on my business, you know, which is an irony in and of itself. So if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you a couple of lessons, kind of tips, you know, general, but, but I, I'm sure can help that you've amassed, you know, throughout your vast journey. Let's talk about relationships because that was that's going to catapult through what we just spoke about. We spoke about how important it is. Are there any tips or aspects to relationships that you want to share with the entrepreneurs out there who might or might not think that relationships are so important? Not Not what you just said in terms of, yeah, support is important, but what did you learn? What would you do better? What would you do different? Who would you spend more time with, you know, in your relationships throughout the, your journey? You know, it took me a long time to figure this out. And I think probably just a year or so ago, I, I finally got it together. You're either an entrepreneur or you're not. And if you're an entrepreneur, it's not just your business, right? If you're an entrepreneur, you need to have that same mentality at home. If your relationship isn't working out, you're going to work harder. If you're not spending enough time with your wife, you're going to find ways to spend more time with her. If, if the people around are, are giving Valentine's Day gifts of uh, chocolate and flowers, you're going to give uh, business courses to Harvard. You're, you're going to do things above and beyond. And if you can think that way in every aspect of your life, then your entrepreneurship in your business is going to be so much better because you're practicing it not as 7, 8, 10, 12 hours a day. It's your life. And if you can treat 
all of your life is entrepreneurship, then you know you got to go through fires. Things are never going to work out the way you think they're going to work out. There's always going to be bumps in the road and twists and turns that you didn't expect and disappointments. Those are the types of things that break up marriages. Yeah. And yet those are the type of things that we run through in our business. Take that thinking and bring it home. And if you can do that, then you're going to wake up happy in the morning. Yeah. I always say that entrepreneurs only do one thing and they solve problems. That's really all they do. Right. They get up in the morning, there's a problem, they solve it. And, and you're right. It's so important to look at everything in your life as something that you can solve or something you can make better. And, and if you pay attention to all of the other aspects, now we talked about relationships with others. What about the relationship with yourself? How long did it take you to learn about that one? That's number one, right? Is that the first hat? Hat number one, the golden hat. <laughs> yeah. I'm still in that discovery, you know? That I, don't, I don't think that that ever ends. You really need, it's the foundation for everything else, right? If you don't believe in yourself, you can't do any of the, those other things in there. But there's always doubt. Every time something goes wrong, even though you know you're going to work your way through it, there's always that kind of self-doubt. Am, am I really up to this challenge? Am I really the person that I think I am. And so there's always that struggle, for me at least, and it may not be uh, normal, but for me, there's always this kind of, I can do more, I can do better. And so uh, discovering myself is, is an ongoing process. But I can tell you this, I'm liking myself more and more. And I think the more that I give, uh, the more that I think altruistically, the more that I lead with purpose and the more that I'm able to tell others, you know, I have like 500,000 followers now on Instagram, the more I'm able to tell them on a daily basis, it's going to be okay. Uh, you know, the one thing you can change overnight is your mindset. And then if you can change that overnight, everything else changes. And so I'm liking me. And I think that that's the thing you need to work on every single day. In fact, the two hours in the morning, and I suggest this to everybody else, before you work on your business, work on the most important thing, which is you. And yeah. so I get up early. I have a trainer. I'm 72. I have a trainer that comes here 60 to 90 minutes a day, Monday through Friday. We're working hard. I've, nice. I've had I've had four 20-something-year-old associates that uh, that work with me came to work out with me. Every one of them threw up <laughs> in the workout. Every one of them. So this is not like a 72-year-old workout. Um, so a workout... And then I'll, I'll spend some time to talk about gratitude. You know, what it, it could be just breathing one day when you're reading about really bad pollution in another place. So find something to be grateful for every single day. And then I do positive affirmations to really for that hat one, that you can do this, you know, you're tough, you're resilient. Uh, and after that, I'll meditate. And you can meditate for 30 seconds and get a charge out of it. You don't have to do that for an hour or two. And, and by the way, you don't have to have a blank mind. I still yeah. can't get that shit together. You just no have one. to calm yes. down, right? Yes. Focus on the moment and everything else. Forget about everything else. And then I'll read a paragraph, a page, half a book, whatever it is. I do those things first so that when I tackle my day, I'm of much better service to everybody else because I serve myself first. I love that. You know, I have, I have bookends. So I have my morning routine and then my evening routine to close off the day because I think morning routine starts in the evening. But, you know, you've you've had experience hanging out with a bunch of really powerful and, and probably very successful individuals. Do you do you see a common thread with those individuals having a morning routine, evening routine, some sort of cadence or discipline 
Is that one of the, the secrets to their success, you think? Yeah. You have to do the things you don't want to do in order to get the things you want to have. Yes. Right? You can't. Everybody wants to have an extraordinary life, but nobody wants to do the daily extraordinary yes. things required to make that happen. So if you start your day doing these regimented things that are designed to get your body going, to get your brain going, to get your spirit going right at the very beginning of the day, if you do those, then you have a much better chance of making through all the fires ahead of you every single day. And I see that common thread. I recently was asked to join this men's group of quite successful entrepreneurs. And there's this mindset that runs throughout that organization of giving back, trying harder, doing the right thing, being a responsible husband. In this case, it's a men's group, so it's all about being responsible husbands. But there is that thread of uh, you know always doing the right thing. And every Saturday for three hours, we meet, seven in the morning when everybody else is laying in bed. We'll meet for, for three hours and Every Saturday, there's like three or four speakers that are like the best of the best in the world wow. that show up there. I don't know how the hell uh, we get them, but they come and talk. And it's always about doing better, trying harder, um, making more friends, uh, helping, up, helping more people. So that, that mindset permeates. I love that. You say that abundance comes with passion. I love that, you know, because this speaks to everything we've been covering so far. Can you expand a little bit about that? Because it seems like that's how you rule your life with passion rather than focusing on the on the abundance side of things. Right. And again, as I said, to be a, a life a life entrepreneur, not just on your business, right? Yes. The the passion if you're gonna start a business, especially you young entrepreneurs out there that are trying to figure out what to do to make my first million, forget about that. Find what drives you on the inside and it's hard to find at 20 like what's my purpose in life and it may be vague but but think about the things that you're passionate about because your purpose is hiding in there uh, and think about the things that you're passionate about and find a way to take those things and turn them into a business that you're going to really love doing so that even in the very beginning when you wake up and you don't have enough money for ramen you're still putting your feet on, on the ground on the side of the bed and you're smiling because you're doing what you're meant to do. And so if you can lead your life in that way, abundant things come to you because when you lead with passion, you're trying harder, you're working harder, you're, you're being more thoughtful, you're doing the right thing even when it's the hard thing to do. And abundance becomes a result of the passion that you put into your life on a daily basis. The more passion you have, the more abundance your life will have because you're in tune with what it is you should be doing all along. So that is that is incredible. And you know, I just love, I really it your passion comes across. No question about it. And it comes across obviously when we're speaking, but also on social. And I think that's why you have such a you know massive social following because people need guidance, but they also need inspiration. They need someone to look for to help them understand, yes, life is really difficult. You can't escape it. I don't care if you're in Calcutta or if you're sitting, you know, if you're Elon Musk, challenges will come about. You know, it's funny, Elon Musk said, 85% of my time is fucking dirty, disgusting work that nobody wants to take care of. And then the 15% is when I go in front of the camera and enjoy myself. <laughs> so just so funny. So 
What's the, you know, I'm always, this is fascinating. I think you can learn a lot about this question with this question of individuals. What is that one habit? If you have to choose one habit that allowed you to achieve your success? That's a, that's a very tough question. I know. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I was, um, in fact, on my Instagram, I, I posted this about a year and a half ago. I had 103 fever and um, I posted right at the end of my 90 minute workout with my trainer. And so I, I think it's a perseverance mm-hmm. uh, is probably the one habit to, to know that whether you're having a good day, whether you're having a terrible day, whether things are going amazing in your world or whether the world's falling apart, if you have that perseverance to work through things, to know that there's always going to be a solution or a way through it, I think that's the one thing, the one bit of baggage I, I've carried with me all through my life. I totally agree with that. You know, it's funny. I, I was always thinking about this. The age after Google, the age before Google, right? Before Google, we had to go to a library and search under those cards. And, you know, we had... Dewey Decimal System. Dewey Decimal System. And we had a completely different life. I mean, it was just black and white where post-Google, prior Google. Do you think that the new generation, the post-Google generation, who had easy access to anything that they wanted and, you know, and, and kind of coddling, you know, from the adults. Do you think they have garnered the same type of discipline exercises or like the fundamental, you know, uh, principles that the older generation have? Have you seen that with, the, with your younger audience or, or students? You know, I, I've argued... Um, that this, if the internet went down, it would be the beginning of the second dark ages. And we have such incredible assets at our fingertips and uh, we don't use them. And so I, I think the hard work that we had to do in the past is, is something that nobody's really doing anymore. I'm, I'm, when I say nobody, I'm exaggerating. But the fact of the matter is you can find support for any opinion you have online. <laughs> And you don't have to look any further, right? So we have this depth of available information, of data, of content, of facts, and we just barely skim the surface of it because what we want to prove is so easy to prove. And I would encourage everybody to, you know, second guess, to dig deeper, to get all the facts, to to find things. And and by the way, even when you're starting a, a business. The number one reason for business failure, even today, is that you've built something that nobody wants. How horrible is that? That's right? the number one. When you have Peter all this Drucker. information, <laughs> really, you have all this information at your fingertips now, yeah. and you don't use it. You don't know your competition, the market size, the market growth, the market opportunity, what customers like. What are all yeah. the one-star reviews of the, your future competitors? How are you going to turn those into your five-star reviews? Nobody does that. It's just like, I got a great idea. My mom says it's cool. I'm going to go run, run that way. That's crazy. It's, I mean, it's, it's very true. I think that, you know, speaking of social media, let's, let's continue on with that. Because I think social media is contributing to a lot of entrepreneurial failures. And I say this because there are so many people who are selling the pill right? To cure the ails and continue, they continue to enforce the notion that they have no flaws, right? The ones that are on camera, right? they're in the house and, you know, the Ferrari and all of that. And it's just, it's so appetizing to watch that Facebook feed and seeing, 
you know, the guys roll up in their Bentley and get into their mansion. Their beautiful wife comes in with two daughters and life is incredible. Well, we know that's false advertising, right? And, you know, they're trying to sell you a course or mastermind, you know, probably living in the basement of their mother's house, probably, or grandmother's house, <laughs> because they spent all their money on that mansion and wife and, and car as a rental, right? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I've heard you talk about flaws and that everyone is flawed in some way. What are you currently working? Because, and again, I think entrepreneurs need to understand there is no pill. There are no pills. It is not easy. You're probably not going to make it many times in your life. And it's a lot of hard work. And you are flawed in a lot of ways. What are you battling at this stage in terms of your life? Because you've been so successful. And I don't think there's ever a time where you're not flawed. But what are you currently working on growing, building, discovering? Yeah. And to your point about the internet, yeah, I, I said to some of my friends just last week, I would love to create a social media uh, channel platform that you could only go on and talk about the shit that happened to you today. Yeah, let's no do it. I'm, positive, I'm up. right? You and I, no positivity, right? I mean, I'm t- I would watch that shit every day. You know, my do life sucks. Yes. Uh, yes, and so the reality is, yeah, that you know, rented cars and uh, and fake things to, to sell you a package. Um, don't don't fall for that. And for for me, what I'm working on right now, and again success is not permanent unless you measure success on the basis of your gratitude and joy for what you're doing in your life, then that can be permanent because the financial part of it can go up and down. And and for me right now, I'm going through several challenges. I have, we talk about how hard it is to be an entrepreneur. I have 400 startups under me that are all come from partnership with my company, IdeaPros. 400 entrepreneurs with fires every day. And I'm they're all on my shoulders and I'm all wow. trying to work with them. So it's so much heavy lift, lifting. On top of that, we've had in the last two years, we've had a, around 100,000 applications to, to work with me and, and my company. Not all of them have the money to become an actual partner, but everybody thinks they're an entrepreneur and everybody wants help. So the big challenge for me now is I've been trying to create a lot of programs that are free or very, very inexpensive to help entrepreneurs think the right way that we're all flawed. It's really hard. Focus on your purpose. Focus on doing the right thing. You're going to get there. And and that transition and, and the need to serve so many people, that that is a, a big, heavy burden on me. But somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got to do it. Fred, thank you so much. I mean, I, I definitely want to talk about your new venture, but I'm going to ask you one final question. So I'd like to close out my interviews with the following. Who did you have to stop being and who did you need to become to manifest your current success? And that I ask to all my guests. (laughs) Yeah. I had to really stop being the person that was really myopically focused on me. Uh, The the one that, and by the way, Golden Hat talks about focus on you, but when you do that to the exclusion of all your other hats, Yes. Uh, then that's not a good thing at all. And I, I had to really learn that the best thing that I can be is someone who gives and who shares and who encourages and who empowers and mentors. And that transition is really what made my life a, a whole lot better. To understand that I'm flawed is something that I could never say 
in my earlier mid-20s, uh, maybe even in my early 30s. You know, me make a mistake? No. Uh, no. Headstrong, argumentative. I've become a lot more reflective, vulnerable, and open, uh, transparent, uh, sometimes to an extreme, my girlfriend would argue. <laughs> well, it, we we can touch upon that on the next episode, I'm sure. So <laughs> I'm really curious, and tell the seven hatters, what are you currently working on? Why did you create it? And how are you helping entrepreneurs? Well, we're working on a couple of things. Uh, num number one, always my Instagram page, uh, official Fred Carey. Uh, that page twice a day I post and it's really positivity, uh, changing your mindset, personal development, entrepreneurship, and combining all of those to your point with the seven hats that you got to be all these things. You can't just can't be just hat number one or you can't be hat number three, the entrepreneurial one. You got to wear all these hats and you have to do them well. And that's kind of what I talk about uh, for a couple of minutes a day. And uh, that is for all entrepreneurs for free. The other thing on uh, ideapros.com, I have a blog page there that I'm so proud of. I had little to do with it other than they took my content and put it together in a really formidable way and indexed everything. So if you want to learn about anything from how to start your business to how to get funding to importing, export, marketing, um, app development, any one of those things, there's, there's blogs about all of that, which is another free resource. And I've, I've also started offering now, I have a purpose-driven entrepreneurship video courses. I think it's 15 modules for a couple hundred bucks. In fact, if you use the code IG100, it's $147. I guarantee you it will change your way of thinking or, or call me up and get my money back, your money back. That's my money then, but I'll give it back <laughs> to you. Uh, and uh, that that is really good. And we have another program. It's around a thousand bucks that basically when I started realizing that that the biggest point of failure for businesses, if you've created somebody, something that nobody wants, I've created a program uh, that will take your idea in, will completely vet it, flush it out, research it, competitive analysis, find your go-to-market personas, help you with a pitch deck. So now you know what the hell you're talking about. And you know whether it's a good idea or not, and you're armed with what you need to go out and uh, and, and slay dragons with it. And And then we have our our full partnerships, but that's over a hundred thousand dollars. Very expensive for a serious entrepreneur who doesn't want to spend a million and is willing to give up some equity to spend less, but it's still way too much money for young entrepreneurs. Just find these other things and, and you'll do well. Just find your heart and lead there. I love that. So basically well, it's, too. Oh, thank you. Right so, here. so, so basically you got that staircase to, to support and value, right? You start yeah. off with free, and this is a good example for other entrepreneurs, right? You start off with free, then you get to a little bit further, you know, more value, more value. And if they, they're they willing and they're ready, then they can go all the way. The website that you have, email, anything that where they can connect with you other than Instagram? Yeah, the website is uh, www.ideaprosplural.com. And anybody can write to me directly, Fred at Idea Pros. Uh, I, I respond to all my emails. Fred, you're an inspiration. I thank you for gracing us on the seven hats. So many gold nuggets, so many years of wisdom that I value and, and I take to heart as well as I'm sure all the seven hatters will. And I hope that you affect and inspire many and hope that many will reach out to you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Yes.
I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Fred. Let's end today with a show segment that I refer to as What Can We Hang Our Hat On? And here is my takeaway. I was a entrepreneur for years before committing myself to the standards required to become a fully bona fide entrepreneur. As I stated in my intro, the Marines have a saying, everyone wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. We want to be in the limelight and experience the freedom, the joy, the abundance, the financial independence and fulfillment of what we think our business may lead to, or as the Marines call, heaven. But we are unwilling to die and endure the pain, failure, risks, discomfort, uncertainty, and loss to bring it all to fruition. Fred is a great example of an entrepreneur who talks the talk and walks the walk. He understands that there is no work-life balance. It's life. That's simple. If you're looking at work separate from your life, you're out of balance. Because the balance is how you allocate time to your seven hats, not compartmentalize them. The way you push yourself as an entrepreneur should be the same way that you push yourself with your relationships, physical health, fitness, your self-care, spirituality, and anything else that you strive for. You will encounter bumps in the road, I promise, and there will be good times and bad. You will falter and fail. But if you're an entrepreneur, you are a problem solver, striving for greatness, no matter the impossible odds against you. You, like the Marines, need to bust through that door and demolish the obstacles facing you. And sometimes the obstacle is you. Is it comfortable? Nope. But to live the fullest life possible, you have to be willing to die to pursue your journey to heaven. I want to thank Fred once again for joining me so that we can all benefit from his wisdom. And until next time, if you found this episode helpful, Please hit that subscribe button and tell other entrepreneurs out there what value you receive from it so that we can attract even more high quality people into our 7 Hats community. So for now, I will bid you farewell and success on your journey. And until next time, my name is Yuval Selick and I tip my hat to you.